The other day on social media, I put up a post about Buy Me a Coffee, a simple way listeners can show their appreciation for the podcast by buying me a virtual cup of coffee. Now, I do this podcast because I enjoy it, but also appreciate any financial contribution which helps offset research and production costs. Special thanks to Mandy, Jackie, and Therese for buying me some virtual coffee. It really brightened my week. Another great way to support the show... Tell a friend about it. And now. In 1939, an expedition to the South Pole was to be accompanied by a giant machine with 10-foot-tall tires, something akin to a rolling fortress with a plane on top. Honestly, it reads like something out of the fevered imagination of a 10-year-old boy surrounded by comic books and Legos who really should cut back on sugar. Today we're talking about the Antarctic Snow Cruiser. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. When I was a kid thinking about explorers, I often pictured those explorers in warm places, places Indiana Jones would go. The idea of people braving snow and ice to find more snow and ice, I didn't get it. Of course, there have been many who have ventured to places of never-ending snow and ice, heading out with men, gear, and the fortitude required to endure all that to bring back their findings to advanced science and research, or at least for bragging rights. Before we get to the Antarctic snow cruiser, a little backstory. There have been many expeditions to Antarctica by numerous individuals and countries before the ones discussed in today's story, including one of the first major exploration successes and its connection to Chicago. In October of 1911, a Norwegian adventurer referred to as the last of the Vikings, I'll tell you his name in a moment, set out with four companions, 52 dogs and four sledges. Yep, sledges. I had to look it up. Sleds are what kids use in the snow. Sledges are sturdier sleds used to move freight that are often pulled by dogs. And yes, I tried to figure out whether they should actually be called sled dogs or sledge dogs, but I got way off track researching. Anyway, after encountering exceptionally good weather, the Norwegian crew arrived at the South Pole on December 14, 1911. At approximately 3 p.m. that day, the leader of the expedition raised the flag of Norway, naming the spot Polheim or Polholm. He and his crew returned to their base camp on January 25th, 1912, 99 days and 1,860 miles after their departure. In honor of that explorer's accomplishments, Scandinavians in Chicago in 1928 requested that a new school at Damon and Foster be named after that adventurer. That high school stands today as Roald Amundsen High School. One of the more active explorers of the day was Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Byrd had established two bases on Antarctica, Little America in 1929, and Little America II in 1934. Byrd's second in command on the Antarctic mission to the South Pole, the second go-around, 
was Iowa-born scientist Thomas Polzer, who was credited by Bird for saving Bird's life from carbon monoxide poisoning. With war looming, President Roosevelt was interested in establishing more of an American presence on both sides of Antarctica. After his experiences with Byrd's second expedition, Thomas Poulter had an idea. What if there was a way to get around in Antarctica's frozen wastelands and always have your lab with you? Poulter pitched his idea to the Research Foundation of the Armour Institute of Technology in Chicago, Illinois, in the mid-1930s and got the green light. Between 1937 and 1939, Poulter secured funding with the goal of joining Admiral Byrd's upcoming Antarctica expedition. On July 13, 1939, at the Research Foundation of the Armour Institute of Technology, Dr. Thomas Walter detailed the equipment and expected performance of the Antarctic snow cruiser while exhibiting a 5-foot model of the vehicle. Plans called for it to be 55 feet long and 15 feet wide with a projected completion date of early October in time for the departure of the Antarctic expedition. This vehicle would be designed for the comfortable living by four scientists for up to a year while traveling the South Polar Continent. According to the article, quote, It will be able to lunge over ice crevasses as much as 15 feet wide, move at 30 miles per hour, and climb a 37-degree grade. Its four large tires are to be fitted with pneumatic tires, each 10 feet in diameter and 34 inches across, end quote. The snow cruiser would have a range of 5,000 miles. Its planned wheelbase would be 20 feet. Those 10-foot-tall smooth tires would be designed to retract and allow part of the vehicle to scoot across crevasses. More on that later. The design and its intended use got the project the nickname Penguin One. Powering this mammoth car... Speed Racer fans will get that reference, would be two 150-horsepower diesel engines, each connected directly to an electric generator. Each wheel would have its own motor, and the driver would be able to direct power to any one or any combination of all of the wheels. Fun fact, the tires for the Snow Cruiser were produced by Goodyear at their Akron, Ohio plant. One of them was the 300 millionth tire produced at Goodyear. Insulated walls would keep the occupants comfortable in temperatures up to 100 below Fahrenheit. There would be six compartments on the Antarctic Snow Cruiser, a control room, engine room, a galley and a photo dark room, living quarters, a storeroom, and cargo space. The cruiser would also carry fuel for 6,000 miles, not including the fuel for an airplane that could be fastened to the roof. Fully loaded, it would weigh 75,000 pounds. Although it was announced the cruiser would reach speeds of 30 miles per hour, well... The cost of this 37-ton machine, $150,000, a little more than $2.8 million in today's money, which honestly sounds like a bargain and would be financed independently and then leased to the U.S. government for the expeditions. 
Construction on the Antarctic snow cruiser began at the Pullman Company in Chicago in August of 1939 and was completed in just under 11 weeks. In late September 1939, a two-paragraph mention in the Chicago Tribune informed readers that one of those massive tires would be placed on exhibit in the Weebolt store at Ashland and School, just north of the Belmont-Ashland-Lincoln intersection. Weebolt's was a general merchandise store that many Chicagoans will remember. Strangely, I don't remember them carrying a ton of auto stuff and certainly not tires, so I'm not sure how a Weebolt store was decided as the place to showcase this ginormous tire. So excited were the designers of the snow cruiser, they planned to display it in Grant Park on October 24th from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. The snow cruiser rolled out of the Pullman Standard Car Manufacturing Company at 111th Street and Cottage Grove on October 24, 1939. Two hours and 20 minutes later, it pulled over at 73rd and Jeffrey Avenue for some minor adjustments, then got stuck in an underpass at 39th Street and had more unexplained mechanical problems at 33rd Street. After five hours of issues, the snow cruiser had only made it as far as the south parking lot at Soldier Field, where it stopped, even though there were people waiting in Grant Park to see it. After spending a day on display at Soldier Field and getting some repairs slash adjustments, the snow cruiser departed at 2.45 a.m. on October 26th and made it to Hammond, Indiana, about 23 miles away by 6 a.m. It then traveled on to be tested on sand dunes near Gary, Indiana. By the time it made it to Warsaw, Indiana that night, it was already 45 miles behind schedule. On October 29th, while traveling through Lima, Ohio, the snow cruiser struck a highway bridge and, according to a November 1939 piece in Time magazine, quote, the cruiser slithered off the roadway, sprawled across the ditch like a stricken turtle, its blunt snout ignominiously underwater. A woman hitchhiker who had perched on the stern, jumped off, fled, Driver Poulter cheerfully estimated that it would take several days to get the monster rolling again, looked forward to the vast stretches of the Antarctic snowfields where there would be plenty of room to maneuver, end quote. According to Thomas Poulter, the impact at the bridge broke the steering mechanism. The driver during that stretch misjudged a turn onto the 24-and-a-half-foot-wide bridge in the 20-foot-wide cruiser and slid into the 10-foot gully, complicating efforts to free the beast from the gully the following day were the thousands of spectators who milled about the scene. In case you were wondering, the Antarctic snow cruiser was too big to be put on a freight car and too wide to be put on rails. They also did not have enough time to dismantle it and ship it in parts. Spectators were also a big part of the machine's travels east, as were the traffic jams it caused. When it finally arrived in Massachusetts, it was credited with creating the worst traffic jam in the nation's history when more than 70,000 cars ended up parked on highways and neighboring roads to accommodate the vehicle's path. 
to be loaded onto the supply ship North Star. 20 feet of the rear compartment needed to be cut off to bring its length down to less than 37 feet, with that rear compartment being welded back on once it got to Little America. On November 14, 1939, the supply ship North Star set sail on its 15,000-mile voyage to Little America. The trip to Antarctica was uneventful, and the ship arrived at the Bay of Wales on January 15th. Crews built a ramp made of timber for the snow cruiser to drive down off the ship, but halfway down, the wood broke. Thomas Poulter, who was driving, was able to gun it and make it to safety. The Antarctic snow cruiser's use in Antarctica was underwhelming, as the snow cruiser had never been tested on snow. The smooth tires spun and sank in the icy conditions. The crews tried throwing giant chains over the wheels with limited success, and in some cases found driving backwards achieved better results. The longest distance it managed to travel in a single run was 92 miles. It ended up being parked as a stationary lab, the opposite of the reason it was built. By December of that year, with America joining World War II, the U.S. government focused its attention and money on bigger issues. The Antarctic snow cruiser was abandoned at the Little America 3 base on December 22, 1940. Later expeditions were able to locate the abandoned snow cruiser, including in 1946. In December of 1957, a blurb on page 27 of the El Paso Herald Post noted that the snow cruiser had been found once again. Initial reports claimed it was beneath 14 feet of snow. According to the story, after digging down to the cab, the crew found a supply of well-preserved food, including a can of Tillamook cheese, which they tried and actually found to be fine. There was also meat and other packaged food the men didn't try, but reported it looked very fresh, like it was from a grocery case. They also found a stack of well-preserved envelopes, and on the front of each envelope was a picture of the Antarctic snow cruiser with the words, The Snow Cruiser Reaches the South Pole, and signed by the Research Foundation of the Armour Institute of Technology. With the merger of the Armour Institute of Technology and Lewis Institute in 1940, that campus became known as the Illinois Institute of Technology. The one-time dean of architecture, famed architect Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who designed the campus. Throughout the decades of expeditions, several countries claimed rights in Antarctica and negotiations between the U.S., Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, France, Norway, Chile, and Argentina to settle the matter began in 1948. In order to avoid conflict in the region, 12 countries signed the Antarctic Treaty in 1959. The Antarctic Treaty classified Antarctica as a scientific preserve and banned all military activity on the continent. The treaty was the first arms control agreement to be finalized during the Cold War. To this day, Antarctica remains a site for scientific research and a go-to spot for adventurers who just can't get enough of that endless snow and bitter cold. 
Richard Byrd was recalled to active duty in World War II and was twice awarded the Legion of Merit. He took part in two more expeditions to Antarctica before dying in his sleep of a heart ailment in 1957 at the age of 68. In 1948, Thomas Poulton joined the Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park, California, where he remained until his death in 1978. As for the Antarctic snow cruiser's fate, no one is quite sure. In the mid-1960s, a large portion of the Ross Ice Shelf in Little America's vicinity fell into the Southern Ocean, leading many to believe the snow cruiser went with it, either to the bottom of the sea or trapped in an iceberg. Surprisingly, Thomas Poulter claimed in 1969 he was going back to the South Pole to look for his lost vehicle. He was quoted in a 1970 newspaper saying, quote, I found it last summer with the help of friends. It's at our Little America base camp under 20 feet of ice, but still operable and ready to use. Poulter said he'd let the cruiser stay at the Bay of Wales base camp for possible future use. I found no mention of this odd machine in anything published since. Thank you for listening to today's episode about the Antarctic Snow Cruiser. Feel free to reach out if you have questions about anything covered today or anything to add. My email is chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will have plenty of additional pictures related to the story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You really have to see it to believe it. Check it out and give us a follow. The Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.